Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. When I started preaching through John, there were already certain points that my mind was going to that I couldn't wait to get to. High points, if you will, along the journey uh, in John's Gospel. And John chapter 4 is one of those. It's one of, in my mind, one of the passages, one of the mountaintops of John's writing that stands out. And I hope it will become to you as we go through our time in this chapter precious to you as well. I pray that you will find waters that refresh you as you look at Jesus from the unique perspective that John paints for us here in Samaria as Jesus deals with the woman at the well and then following. Let's look in John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 this morning. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask, for a, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him. And He would have given you living water. Let's pray. Father, guide our minds and our thoughts this morning to see You and Your Son rightly in this passage. I pray that You would still and quiet our hearts and our minds from the distractions of this week and this world that would seek to lead us away from the glories of what is beginning to transpire here at the beginning of John 4. And we pray that we would be found like the woman at the well, and yet not being uncertain of who you are, but being more convinced of who you are as we hear your word this morning. Glorify yourself through this word, Jesus, for you alone are worthy. We pray it in your precious name. Amen. One of the questions that uh, I love to ask people and that I regularly ask people when I meet them after we've had uh, some time to get acquainted and uh, we've moved past this superficial, you know, of hello, how are you, what is your name, and, and the conversation is beginning to get a little bit deeper. For those who are married, I love to ask them, how, how is it that you, you came to meet the one to whom you're married? How did you come to know your spouse? And one thing I've learned in my years of being able to do that is that each one of those stories is entirely unique. Uh, no, no two people have the same story, but each one of those stories carries its own special sweetness about it. Even the ones that uh, the people tell you, you know, it's just kind of mundane, it's kind of, you know, nothing too exciting has its own sweetness. And there's its own uh, uniqueness about it that makes it really special. And it's, it's fun to hear those. I got to do that this week as I sat at lunch with someone and we, we talked and, and he told me his life story and told me how he met his wife. 
It was a lot of fun to sit there and hear him recount that. But you know, one of the things that's true, I think, in almost every one of those stories that they, is that they occur at a time and in a way that is somewhat unexpected. A great part of those stories comes because love seems to spring up out of nowhere or a sense of being smitten comes out of the blue when people aren't necessarily looking for it. Whether it was one of those stories where it was right under your nose the whole time and you had seen it and yet not been aware and then suddenly you're aware. Or whether it's a stranger who invades out of the blue and catches you off guard. Those moments of meeting are always potent stories. And certainly later on, for those of us who are believers, realize God has been at work. God had a hand in these providential encounters. These providential lives that cross. God is always providential in everything that He does, but perhaps nowhere is that more clear than in the relationships that God gives us. And such is the case this morning. In our text this morning, a relationship develops, a providential encounter happens quite out of the blue and quite unexpectedly, and I might even say quite undesirably. God invades a woman who is not seeking God, who did not necessarily want Jesus Christ, and yet God ordains a divine encounter with this woman who was far, far from the type of person that one would desire to encounter or that one would even think possible for her to encounter the living God. The odds are all against her. The odds are all against this meeting. But isn't that how God always works? Against the odds? Outside of human wisdom? Outside of human circumstances? In that moment, when our eyes are open to who God is, His person, when our eyes see His glory for ourselves, when we are left with a staggering sense of awe, and clarity of vision as to who Jesus is, when we, when we walk away with joy, we know we've been found by Jesus. Even when we weren't looking for Him, He was looking for us. And as we grow older, and the longer we walk with Jesus Christ, the more we become aware that is exactly what happened for each one of us. Paul tells us, does he not, in Romans chapter 3, there is none who seeks after God. There is no one who seeks after God. But praise God, we have a Savior who seeks after us. And the only way that any of us can explain why we are following Jesus Christ this morning and why we are here this morning is this, God came to us. God sought us out. A.W. Pink wrote this about this particular passage. Speaking of Jesus in his encounter with this woman. He said he was found of one who sought him not. That's the the power of God's providence. that, That he causes us to find him even when we do not seek him. Because he initiates 
and he carries out his divine providential plan. And what a sweet story it is. And so in the passage this morning, I want you to notice with me that there are two unexpected discoveries around this unlikely convert, this Samaritan woman. And these discoveries lead us not to focus upon her, but to focus upon the person and the provision that she finds in Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at the first verses this morning in the text, we find the discovery of the convert. John begins, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. A fairly mundane beginning. But here comes the woman here in, in Sychar, this city of Samaria. And she comes to the well, as she had no doubt done, day after day to draw water. Now I want you to go back with me just a few verses to grab the context of this well. God wastes nothing. God uses everything, including the location of water wells. And so here is this water well. It is Jacob's well, according to verse 6 of this same chapter. It is the well that he had given to his son Joseph. It is the sixth hour of the day. It is in the middle of the worst and most oppressive heat of this dry and desolate region. And yet, here comes the woman of Samaria at this time. Jesus, about noon, is sitting at this well. And the woman of Sychar, as perhaps she was known, This woman of ill repute shows up at this well in Samaria. Now, why did she come when she came? Commentators have speculated that she came probably because she is the woman of Sychar. She is that woman of Sychar. She's known in the community as being one with whom you would not trust your husband. She has a terrible reputation for moral degradation and so she comes alone at a time when she assumed that no one else would be there she's ashamed of herself she is ashamed of her sin the ancient near eastern custom was that women would often go in groups to the well it was their sewing circle of the day if you will it was a time to to talk it was a time to have discussion and they would do it at at such a time and in such a way that it was not hot or unbearable for them physically it was a social hot spot of the community and yet she's cast out of that she's disregarded by her society she is not at all the kind of woman that other women want to associate with she's not the kind of woman they want to hold up to their daughters and say now here's a woman you can imitate with your life She has to come at a time of day when she expects there to be no one else there. Not in the morning, not in the evening, but in the heat of the day. She didn't want to encounter the women whose husbands she had stolen away. We know that she has had many husbands, that she has had duplicitous activity with the men of the village, as Jesus so clearly points out later in the chapter. She comes at the least crowded time for these reasons. Her shame and her sin overriding her, driving her into hiding. 
Nevertheless, what this woman intended as avoidance, God in His sovereignty, God in His grace, meant as an introduction. Without disruption, without distraction, without other women around the well, Jesus knows exactly when she'll be at the well. And He goes in the heat of the day to wait upon her. A gracious ambush, if you will. To lie in wait for her. Imagine her shock to find a man. Men don't go to wells. Women do. Sitting at a well, not in the cool of the day, but in the heat of the day. Not just a man, but a man who is willing to talk to her. And not just any man who is willing to talk to her, but a man who asks her to share in that conversation. Not to lecture her, not to condemn her, but to invite her into a dialogue with himself. And very quickly in the text this morning, we become aware of how every cultural custom, every moral norm, that are so important to this woman and that are so important in this place mean absolutely nothing to Jesus. He's unfazed. He doesn't care what people think about her. He doesn't care what people think about him. He is here on a divine mission to save. This man who is perceived to be Jewish and thus of somewhat of a higher class is asking this woman for hospitality. Look at the text. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. He doesn't ask for a drink. He commands the drink. Here's this woman of a certain reputation. Here's this woman of a certain ethnic lineage. And here is one who his own people are known for their separation from women of said background, and he is asking her and even commanding her to extend hospitality to him. We don't quite understand this because, in all honesty, our culture is not a hospitable culture. But hospitality in the Middle East is of utmost importance. It it defines so much about their culture. One with whom you share a meal is a big deal. That's why when you read that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors, that's a big deal. We'll go to lunch with just about anybody. It's, I mean, right? It's just lunch. In fact, I think there's, isn't there a dating service or something that I've seen an ad for? Call that, it's just lunch or something? I mean, what harm could it do? We're just having a meal. But Jesus, over and over, the Scripture wants you to know He sat down and shared hospitality with someone. That's why Paul, in talking about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, says you can't eat with this person because hospitality has meaning to it. Here's Jesus commanding hospitality from one who the world has rejected. Now, verse 8 gives us some context as to, to... the, 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 the reason this is happening. And again, this is not by accident. 
This is not by accident. Look at verse 8. Four. So we, we know this is a description clause. This is an explanation why Jesus commanded her to demonstrate hospitality. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Now, I, I, I don't want to be nerdy because you probably already think I am. But to help color the, the picture a little bit better and help to raise it up off the page and make it a little bit three-dimensional here, the, the way that John constructs the sentence here in writing this in the original language, he does so with a very rare form of the usage of words. It occurs only 83 times in the entire New Testament, and yet it occurs two times in the four verses we're looking at this morning. And what he is communicating is that with very intentionally the disciples are sent away in such a way that their being away what hap- makes what happens now possible. Jesus sends them away to go buy food so that he can be alone when the woman of Samaria comes to the well. It's no accident that she comes to the well. It's no accident that Jesus is at the well. What we learn is that it's also not an accident that Jesus is alone at the well. Hey guys, go on. You know, for us parents, when we're trying to have a discussion, that means we shut the door and lock it. Because little feet are always at the door and little hands are always knocking on the door, right? Isn't it amazing how much they need you in those moments? Jesus sends the disciples away so that he is without distraction to deal with this woman. Jesus knows his own disciples. I mentioned it last week. I'll just remind you again of why this might have been necessary. It is the Samaritans that James and John want to destroy with fire. They're going to pass back through Samaria on their way back to Jerusalem on the inbound trip. And they're going to ask Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire and destroy this village? You think they may have been a bit disruptive then when Jesus is not only sitting there talking to a Samaritan, but a Samaritan of her status? Guys, why don't y'all go buy food? I've got a meeting. They're gone and the result of their being gone is found in that he is alone and therefore needs to be served because his disciples would have normally done this chore. And so he asks the woman, commands the woman, hey, bring up water for me. Bring up water for me. Verse 9 then, we move on, gives us A picture, a window into the soul of this woman. She immediately recognizes Jesus as being a Jewish man. Probably something about the way he talked, an accent. The way he dresses as a a Jewish man would, would no doubt be different than the way a Samaritan man dresses. And she instantly sees the problem, doesn't it? She begins to ask him. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? 
Now, I want you to notice something else. Notice that twice in this one verse, it is emphasized that not only is she Samaritan, she is Samaritan woman. And we'll come back to that, but just notice in the text that John takes the time and goes to the pain to spell that out for you on more than one occasion here. She recognizes by Jesus' dress, by his speech, that he is different, that he is different in such a way that under any other circumstances it would have been a problem. And she begins to question him. And while we look at what is transpiring here, the problem is actually far worse than you might think. She says to him, you are Jewish. I am Samaritan woman. It's not just two different people from two different cultures. It's not just two people from two different genders. It is the fact that it is a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. This makes the divide, it makes the chasm even greater. I won't repeat it exactly because of the nature of tender ears. But there was a specific practice and a specific way of thinking in Jesus' day that shortly after Jesus passed off the scene was actually codified into Jewish law in the Mishnah, which is their extra-biblical writing that their culture was guided by. And in Nida 4.1, which is part of the Mishnah, Samaritan women were not only portrayed as bad, but perpetually and always the most unclean of human beings. It says the Samaritan women are always a certain type of category, ceremonially defiled, very unclean. Now this was already in practice in Jesus' day. This is how Jews thought about Samaritan women. They were the most unclean of the unclean. It's the same language if you're familiar with Isaiah And his usage of the term in Isaiah 64, verse 6, when he says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, it is the same language, the same thought that was used of Samaritan women in particular. They are the most filthy and to be disregarded among society, polite Jewish society. So how could this man, who appeared to be so righteous, who was very clearly Jewish, not only ask her for a drink, but a Samaritan woman for a drink? The the language highlights, her question highlights the very gulf of separation, the very awkwardness and tension between who she is, and who Jesus is. It infers that she understands in his world she is absolutely unacceptable and that what he has just asked for is highly inappropriate. The culture would disown both of them for what is transpiring here. 
Now, there's another parenthetical citation, like verse 8 kind of explained a little bit of the background for us. So does this parenthesis at the end of verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. No dealings whatsoever. And scholars have debated, what, what does this mean? Obviously, there's some. The disciples just went to buy food from Samaritans. So how do you explain that? Will they not do anything with them? And the answer is, no, they would, but they'd only do certain things with them. In fact, the Jews were so fastidious in their hatred of the Samaritans that they had a list of certain foods you could buy from Samaritans, but you couldn't buy other foods. Unless you think I'm being silly, I'll be more specific. Foods that were harder, physically harder, in their makeup were deemed to be less likely to be defiled, to be penetrated by uncleanness. So a a loaf of bread with a crusty hard top would be more acceptable to buy from a Samaritan than, say, something that was porous and soft. Now, how silly is that? They actually had laws that governed this kind of thing. And so it's not that they can't deal with Samaritans at all. It's just you had to be careful about dealing with Samaritans because if there is a choice, you always take the choice that doesn't involve a Samaritan. It could mean that. But more than likely, the view that is brought up here in her dealing with Jesus and in John's parenthetical statement is this. You never share the same cup that a Samaritan drinks out of. You don't use the same utensils. You don't drink out of the same straw. You don't use the same bucket to raise your water. It is ceremonial vessels that are unclean. And Jews would never drink out of one of those vessels. And yet here's Jesus and he says, hey, bring up a drink for me. Now, was that drink just going to magically jump out of the well and into his mouth? No, she would have to provide a utensil for him to drink out of. And what John is drawing your attention to is that he is about to violate another sacred taboo. He's going to share a common vessel with a Samaritan woman. Her bucket, her cup, her water. How could this man violate Jewish tradition down to the very nuanced level that he is about to do? And regardless of how this little parenthesis is meant to be taken at the end of verse 9, what is being missed is this. By all of the scholars who get into the minutia, well, what kind of food could they buy and what kind of utensils could they share and blah, blah, blah. And it just gets, you know, gets kind of tedious at some point. But what every single one of them miss and what you and I dare not miss this morning is this. Jesus Christ is by no means and in no way threatened by ritualistic uncleanness. In fact, ritual uncleanness needs to be afraid of Jesus. He's not touched by that. He doesn't care about that. That means nothing in dealing with a holy God. 
Jesus is so righteous, he is absolutely undeterred by all the cultural nonsense. No, that doesn't make me dirty. I'm God. No, your pathetic rules about contamination and all of these things don't touch me. I'm God. And so he has no problem saying to this woman, what are you saying? Give me the water. But don't you know what you're doing? Give me the water. Don't you know what this will do to you? Give me the water. You see, everywhere that Jesus shows up, uncleanness flees. When Jesus touches a leper, he doesn't become leprous. The lepers become whole. When he has a woman with an issue of bleeding that touches him, he doesn't become unclean and need to be put outside the camp. She becomes healed, whole, and clean again. Where Jesus invades, life and purity happen. He deals with it first with her physically, and then later he will talk about how this relates to her soul. God is impervious to all man's man-made rules about ritualistic uncleanness. I want you to think about the contrast. Humanity. Mere human beings. So weak. So mortally flawed. That we're actually afraid of a water pot. And here is Jesus. God in human flesh. Perfect beyond your ability to understand how perfect He really is sitting there saying, I'm not afraid of your water pot. And I'm not, to be, I'm not afraid to be seen with you. I'm not afraid to talk with you. I'm not afraid to share hospitality with you. And, and, and mankind, humankind, would be prone to think that such perfection would be much less sturdy and much less durable. And yet here's Jesus. He is absolutely unafraid of defilement. Absolutely unafraid of being made unclean whatsoever. Other Jewish men would have been sent running away in fear. But what causes other men to run away in fear causes Jesus to run toward impurity and holiness. Jesus is not deterred by your sin. The darker the sin, the faster, as it were, Jesus seems to run to it. He runs away from the Pharisees and their self-righteousness. He runs away from even His own disciples and their views of ritualistic purity. And what does He do instead? Show me the sinner. Show me the sinner. That's where I'm going. I'm going to make clean what is defiled, not become defiled by what is unclean. It doesn't matter to Jesus whether you were a leper, whether you were blind, whether you were bleeding, whether you were dead, or whether you were immoral. Jesus is there to make clean and alive. To make whole what was broken. Uncleanness doesn't stand a chance when Jesus touches it. And this lady is about to find this out for herself. But what about Jesus? What would he endure? I want you to go over to chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 and verse 48. You find out the price 
humanly speaking, that Jesus had to endure for this. Because of His interactions, like John 4, the Jews answered and said to Him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Blasphemy doesn't get much more pointed than that. That is the unpardonable sin very clearly to say that God is the devil. And yet here's the Jews because he's had these kinds of interactions. Oh, you're a Samaritan. You're the worst, most vile, most unclean thing we can think of. In fact, so unclean, you're a demon. Jesus is unfazed. He's unfazed by their mere religious pretend playing. It's like little kids playing house. Jesus sees right through it. You're not the daddy. You're not the mommy. This isn't your house. That's not real food you're making in that little plastic pot. You're a fraud. But I'm not. I'm here to deal with sin. Jesus is unfazed by those spiritual corpses that pretend to play religion. And she is amazed. She is absolutely in awe of this. How is it that you, being a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, who your own tradition says is the most unclean thing it can imagine, how is it that you ask me for water? I just absolutely cannot comprehend this. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't become bogged down in her superstition, in cultural norms, in ritualistic debates. He moves on to what matters. Look at verse 10. And we go from discovering the woman, we go from discovering the background that she brings to Jesus, and we come to verse 10, and we discover the Christ. And we're not talking about that. We're not getting into that. Rather, Jesus answered and said to her, If you only knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him for it. Right? And He would have given you living water. Verse 10 finds Jesus taking over the conversation. And He's not here to ask questions. He's here to give answers. This this relationship that dawns on Jesus that's so unexpected that this woman has been trying to derail and find her way out of by excuses and questions that point to all the reasons why it shouldn't happen. Jesus just stops it all, takes over the conversation. And He begins to guide her eyes to what she should be seeing. And may I say to you this morning what you should be seeing. It's easy and even spiritual sounding to throw out all manner of minutia and objections and legalities. You know, it's possible for us this morning, too, to be so far off the mark, just like this poor woman, that we miss 
the point entirely if we fail to focus on Christ. There's a gentle rebuke in what Jesus is saying to her as he begins his course correction in verse 10 and demonstrates who he is. He begins with that bold statement, if you knew. He doesn't give a preamble. He doesn't say, you know, we'll come back and we'll talk about the cultural nuances and we'll talk about all of these things and how they relate to this. He doesn't go to any of that. He just says, if you only knew. And really, that's how we would translate it best into English. If you, if you only knew. It's, it's a conditional clause that, that assumes she doesn't get it. And so, so he says to her, if you only knew, which I know you don't, or you wouldn't be saying these things. If you really understood, you wouldn't have thrown out all of these objections. But you don't know. And only have you not known, but what you have not known is currently affecting the way you're living your life. The way you're interacting with me. Your misunderstanding is contrary to the facts. And those misunderstandings have led you to hide in the misery of sin. Why are you here at noon, young lady? Ma'am, why have you come alone? And I'll tell you why you've come alone. Because you don't know who I am. Because if you knew, you'd be drinking living water that blows away your sin, that blows away all the cultural things, that blows away all the ritualistic things. If you only knew, but you're here at noon, and you're here alone, therefore I have to assume you don't know. But I'm here to tell you. I'm here to convince you that what you previously did not know, you now will know. If you knew who I was, you would no longer make excuses. Notice how he approaches her. Notice how he speaks to her. He says, if you only knew the gift of God. If you only knew. There's so much debate about what the gift is, but it's impossible to, sell, uh, to separate what the gift is from what follows. And what follows is this, and who he is. Who is the gift? Jesus. Jesus. You see, the Samaritans were just Jewish enough. You remember last week from our little history lesson. They were just Jewish enough to be waiting on the Messiah. They were just Jewish enough. Remember, they're half Jewish. They're, they're half other foreign entities that have been brought in. They're just enough that they too waited on a Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm here. The gift of God, it's me. What you've been waiting on, you don't have to wait any longer for. It is me. I am the gift of God. I am He who speaks to you now. If you only knew. The free and gracious gift of God. The very one who created the well where we're sitting now sits in front of you. 
the very water that is in the bottom of this well that I spoke into existence. Yeah, I'm here. This well is nothing compared to the one sitting at the well with you. If you only knew. If you only knew. You would not ask, why do you speak to me? But you would be asking me to give you something instead. You would know my power. You would know my willingness and my eagerness to provide for you. You would have known the extent of that which I give. You would have known the quenching power of living water. You would have asked and He would have given you from an overwhelming supply that stems from who He is. It's easy for all of us to sit here this morning and go, yeah, she missed it, didn't she? Let me ask you a question. Do you know Christ any different, any better? Is your understanding of Jesus what it ought to be? Do you know the one who sits at the well? Have you tasted of the goodness and the greatness of God who meets sinners at a well in the heat of the day? Who come alone because of their shame and because of their sin? He's not running from you. He's running to you. Do you know that? He's not deterred by your sin. He wants to remove your sin. Do you know? Because if only you knew, you'd be asking. You'd be celebrating who it is that sits in front of you. He's not like any other gift that could be given. He gives living water. Again, Jesus uses a very vivid picture. He says, if you had known, if you had only known. And again, this is one of those rare usages of a verb that implies something had occurred in the past that is still having present effects. And he's saying, because you haven't known in the past, that's why you're acting the way you're acting now. Because if you hadn't believed the lie, if you hadn't been uninformed, you would have been asking me to give you living water. Living water. You say, okay, I get it. They're at a well, water, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. And we talked about it a bit in this morning in our adult Sunday school class with Abraham and Abimelech and then Isaac, what the Philistines did to the wells that Abraham had dug. What did they do to him? They filled them in with dirt. They made them polluted. They made them unusable. And maybe some of you have even experienced this. Water wells can go bad. I remember it wasn't all that long ago. There was a, an outbreak of E. coli here in Midland. And it stemmed from a certain area of town. The water wells had been infected. That, that aquifer had been infected with the E. coli bacteria. They were stagnant. You can imagine even more open wells. We, we have an advantage nowadays where we, we send pipe down and we enclose a well and it's somewhat sealed off from things falling into the well, but not in Jesus' day. They had to be open enough where you could look down and see. Well, you can imagine what goes into that. 
And so wells could become polluted. Wells could become stagnant. Wells could become sources for illness and bacteria. But Jesus says, I'm here not to just give you water. I am here to give you living water sitting on top of a well. And if you remember last week, this is no ordinary well. This is a well that is still today fed by an underground, ever-changing, cold, deep, fresh spring and river. Jesus says, you know, you could go to other wells, but I'm here to give you living water. Just like what comes out of the ground right here at this well is different, so it is with what I give you. It isn't just life. It is life more abundant. It's not just water. It's living water. I don't just save. I save to the uttermost. I am all together unique and I'm sitting here right in front of you. Don't miss the gift that God has given you. Jesus is not a religious cul-de-sac where things flow in and then stop and become stale. No, Jesus is a refreshing fountain of life. He's never stale. He is never dangerous. He is never harmful. He is always breathing out and giving out life because that is what He is. Long had even the Jewish people been destroyed from pursuing the wrong wells. We read it earlier this morning. For my people have committed two evils. What's the evil? They forsook me and dug broken wells. And in forsaking me, they forsook the fountain of living water. What does Jesus say to me? To say to this woman, you would have gotten living water. What happens when we take our eyes off of the glories of Christ? We start in that moment digging broken wells that hold no water. Jesus says, go back to the well of living water. Quit looking at things. And and, and let's again be reminded of what we discussed last week. These people are not pagans in the sense that They know nothing about God. They have the Torah. They know the first five books of the Old Testament like the back of their hands. But how quickly we go off the rails when Christ is not at the center of our thinking. How quickly the well becomes broken. How quickly those fissures drain the water. But Jesus says, I give you living water. If only you knew. If only you knew. In our greatest need, Jesus stands not only to meet that need, but to give more than we realized we ever needed. He gives Himself. Eternal, immutable, unchanging, more than enough. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, I'm like the woman at Samaria. I have so much guilt and so much shame and so much sin. 
And that might be the case if you were talking to another human being. But there's no such thing as too sinful, too immoral, too scandalous, too forsaken for Jesus. Nothing. He's there to meet it and not only meet it, to run to it and to give living water in its place. Oh, how he yearns to do that. So much so that he sets up this meeting just perfectly. Don't you know this woman? We know what she does after she meets Jesus. She runs back into the village that had shamed her. And she starts telling him. I know it's preempting, but just let me remind you. What does she tell the people? Come see a man who told me all the things I'd ever done. You think that's easy for her to go back into the village that knew what she had done and to say, hey, let me remind you all. Let me bring it to the forefront of your mind what I've done. Let me tell you, Jesus knew and Jesus told me and I'm confessing to you that we all know what I am. But He gave me living water. And no longer am I ashamed No longer do I fear. No longer am I in hiding. I'm here to tell every day for the rest of my life that I met a man who not only told me, but forgave me for what I'd done. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know the eagerness of that, Jesus? You know, I'll bet if they had epitaphs on headstones in her day, that would have been her epitaph. Come see a man that told me all things that ever I had done and yet forgave me. A story that to her would never grow old, that she would never again have to be ashamed. You know, Let's put it in practical terms. This was the last day she came to the well at noon. She could go in the morning and she could go with her friends. She could go with a clear conscience and a clean heart. Because she met a man at a well. Who was unlike any man she'd ever met. Not because he was Jewish. Not because he was male. But because he is God. Do you know that, Jesus? He waits for you. For those of you that know Him, how could you ever cease the pattern set forth by this woman running into your village proclaiming His greatness, proclaiming His forgiveness? How could we ever stop? May God give us the right understanding because He has set the right place and the right time. May we all come to meet Him again this morning face to face and go from this place shouting, Come see a man. Come see a man. 
Father, thank You for inexplicable mercy and grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. By Your Holy Spirit this morning, may the sound of our questioning and the sound of Jesus' gentle, loving rebuke of if only you knew be drowned with the praise of men and women and boys and girls shouting, come see a man. Come see a man. May that drown out the doubt and the shame and the guilt of sin as living water is applied to us. O Lord, grant faith to believe to those who have never seen Jesus. Cause them to trust fully in Him and His forgiveness. Cause those who have been forgiven to sing louder. To sing in places where we have previously not sung. To call people we've not previously called to tell them, hey, come meet the man. who caused me to pass from death to life and gave me living water. Jesus, You are more precious more grand and more glorious than we in our wildest imaginations could ever dream. And may we treasure You in our hearts today by faith having met You at the well of Your Word this morning. We ask this all for Your glory. It's all we want. It's all we desire. And for the good of Your people whom You are calling. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.